You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Good morning, everyone. Praise God. Another day of Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is an incredible, incredible psalm. You know, the psalms are, are words pinned to music, but they're the testimony of the psalmist and how he is reflecting the work of God in, uh, in his life. And last week, um, I started a two-week series entitled, The Word of God, The Key to Living Holy. And of course, the emphasis is on uh, looking at the Word of God as a tool that the Lord uses to sanctify us. Sanctification, Jesus says, is by the Word of God. John 17, 17, the Lord says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. That was Jesus' prayer, what is commonly called a high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And so he's asking the Father to sanctify believers, to bring them to a place where they are living replicas, if you will, of Jesus, morally and, uh, and spiritually. It's also reflected in the prayer. You know, the, the disciples' prayer in Matthew chapter 6, that's typically called the Lord's Prayer, but the disciples' prayer begins uh, as Jesus is teaching them to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I remember as a kid, uh, saying that every night before going to bed. Didn't mean anything to me, but I said it every night because I got in that rhythm of I have to do this because it's uh, what God requires. But I didn't understand it, obviously, you know, as a kid, saying it over and over. But what's, what's, what connects this to the, the emphasis on sanctification is the Lord Jesus in teaching the disciples to pray, first of all, wanted them to recognize to whom they were praying, right? They're praying to the Father. And then secondly, to recognize the reverence of the one to whom they are praying, hallowed be thy name. So what does that mean, right? Hallowed be thy name. Well, hallowed comes from the word hagiosmos, which means holy, sanctify, sanctification, consecration, all of these words that we typically look at in terms of being set apart or looking at it as being pure comes from that word. So hallowed means to make something holy. So the question is, how do we make God holy, right? He is holy. So when the prayer, when, the, when he's teaching them to pray and they are to hallowed be thy name, make the name of God holy, right? And the name of God represents all that God is, the sum total of who he is represented in the name. And so to hallow the name of God is to show him as holy. And obviously it begins with the person praying, let your name be hallowed in me. In other words, let me always treat you as holy. Hallowed be thy name. And so we can easily, very easily overlook the priority of God, right? The priority of God is not so much what we do for him as it is who we are becoming. Who we are becoming will certainly impact what we do for the Lord, but sometimes we we get it out of sync. We put the doing first and the becoming second, and the becoming is always there. Always. It's always fresh. It's always the priority of God in that 
He wants us first to walk in holiness and then conduct whatever uh, ministries, whatever he gives us, he wants us to do that in a holy way. I am always uh, taken back by hearing people talk about the Lord and their lives don't reflect that level of holiness. At, at work, for instance, my main, uh, the thing that concerns me the most about Roosevelt, about Roosevelt is I don't ever want someone to look at me as being a hypocrite, that I say I am a child of God and I believe in the sanctity of the scriptures and all of that, and then I live a horrible life. You know, as a principal, I talk to parents sometimes, and they come in, and they're fuming and cussing and all of that, and, and then in the midst of all of that, as we're talking, I might mention, um, you know, I'll pray for you. I'm a preacher, and I'll pray for you, and it's amazing what happens then, the changes, right? It shouldn't have to come to that, right? We should, we should want to exude holiness as best we can um, by the glory of God. And so I'd never want to disgrace the Lord in any way so that people like the Jews end up blaspheming the name of God because of something I've done or not done. Well, growth, growing in grace and a knowledge of the Lord of God is priority. And I just want to show a couple of scriptures. There are obviously many, but I want to touch on three here that just um, exemplifies this notion of growing, just being a believer that's constantly growing. Psalm 92, 12 says, the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Second Peter 3, 17 and 18, and this is an incredible passage, especially the verses above it. But for time's sake, um, these two verses reflect growing. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. But grow in grace and in knowledge. Grow in your practice of grace and grow in your knowledge of the Lord. Ephesians 4, where the Apostle Paul, he is setting in the church, he talks about the fact that God gave some to be evangelists, uh, uh, preachers, pastor teachers, prophets for the work of service. And the work of service is equipping the saints. And he goes through a, just a, a list of things that happens when you're not equipped. But then in verse uh, 14 and 15, he says, as a result, as a result of the equipping. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. The emphasis is on growing up. And so we talked about last week how the psalmist, he sees the word of God as the instrument that, that sanctifies us, that does everything we need for life and godliness. It prepares us for living a holy life. And I talked about how verses, the 
verses one through six essentially talks about the glory of God being seen through creation, right? As the sun governs the universe, as it reflects the glory of God, then the word of God living through believers reflect the glory of God through us, people. So you have the universe speaking naturally to the glory of God. And then you have individuals who are endowed with the word of God, born again, speaking the truth in love, and we are, in essence, reflecting the glory of God in a more specific way, unlike the, the, uh, the general revelation that comes from the universe, we speak truths that are more specific and certainly specific to how one is saved. And so we're returning back to Psalm 19. And what's an interesting about the breakdown of the Psalm is in the first six verses, like I said, we're talking about the universe and every one of us could say that because it's absolute truth being presented. And then we looked at last week as I attempted to exalt and elevate the Word of God, we looked at how um, the Word of God and how it's presented and what it does and its various facets, but that's absolute as well in verses 7 through 9. But this week is not so absolute. This week is more subjective. In other words, this week... Every one of us should be able to say what the psalmist says, but we we may not be able to do that if we're truthful with ourselves. And I think you'll understand that as we travel through um, these five verses. So let me begin with prayer, and then we're going to look at Psalm 19. Father, thank you, Lord, for the glory that you have uh, given us access to your glory, that Lord, we can see you through the word and, and be fascinated by all that you represent, who you are and what you do. We rejoice, Lord, in this place that you've put us called salvation, delivering us from the, the uh, dominion of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of your dear son, where we truly have life. Lord, we thank you for this and we pray that uh, you will guide our thoughts today as we go into the word so that our lives might be enhanced and knowing you better, and that you might be glorified in the presentation of your word. So, Lord, we uh, commit this time to you, um, just asking you to condition our hearts, condition our minds. Let us not leave here um, in the same condition that we arrived. Let us have a greater appreciation for your word and, and a greater desire Um, to apply it in every facet of our lives, and to you be the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So, looking at Psalm 19, and I'm going to begin in verse 10. We're going to look at verses 10 through 14. They are more desirable. Now, they obviously goes back to what we talked about last week, where we're looking at what the psalmist calls the Word of God through the, uh, the, the precept, the law, the precepts, the testimony, the commandments, the fear, and the judgments of God. That will, that's what he's talking about as he talks about they. And he says, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit, acquit 
me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So in these five verses, my goal is to inspire a greater appreciation and application of the word of God, greater even than you have at the present time, whatever that might be. David here is giving a personal testimony of what the word of God means to him. And just to give you three points to, to kind of hang your cap on, he's uh, essentially going to talk about the word as his passion, a great desire for the word, protector, and then the word as his purifier. First, the word is his passion. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So the first thing he's talking about is that the scriptures are incredibly desirable. He makes the comparison of the scriptures to gold, not just gold, but fine gold, gold that has been refined in fire and it's pure. And he's comparing that to scripture. And he has a greater passion for the scripture than he would have for gold. His purpose here is to show that the scriptures is incomparable in terms of what our passion should be. There should be nothing that should have greater passion in our lives than wanting to read and consume the word of God. Gold refined in fire. And then he says uh, its delight is compared to honey. But not just any honey, right? But honey from the honeycomb. Pure, delightful honey. And of course, honey from the honeycomb, and I can't testify to this, I just know it by reading it, is much sweeter than the honey you get from the grocery store, right? It can't be compared. But if you ever have tasted honey from a honeycomb, you know the delight. And the, the, the psalmist is saying, that's the kind of delight that I have for the Word of God. The Word of God is his passion. Now, when you think about that, as, as I'm putting this together, several verses came to mind, right? And the one that I want to share this morning is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Here, Peter says, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Peter says, long, have this deep passion for the word of God. And he gives the illustration of yearning like a babe with milk, right? When I think about my kids when they were very young and how they acted when they, and you know, when they're hungry, nothing else gets in the way when they're hungry. They long to eat and they want the food, they want the nourishment, 
That's the kind of analogy Peter says we should have when it comes to the Word of God, yearning for the Word of God like a baby longs for food. And, and another verse that I really like is Psalm 41, where the psalmist compares um, his thirst for God. And so this, this panting of a deer, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. It's that same kind of longing for the Word of God that the psalmist says he longs for God. And a deer, I mean, you get the picture of a deer that's, that's dying of thirst, perhaps, and he's looking for the brook so that he might satisfy his thirst, longing for the Word of God. So the psalmist, he starts off by looking at all that we talked about last week, about the Word of God, and he sees it as something that's ultimately desirable. It's his utmost passion and desire. Now, I thought about this. I thought about if someone were to say, Roosevelt, so you have a choice. You have a choice between gold and the Word of God. Which would you choose? And it's a serious question, isn't it? It's a question that's not often asked, but it's a serious question, and it highlights really where we are with the Word of God. So first, he sees the Word of God as his passion. Second, in verse 11, he sees the Word of God as his protector. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. He sees the Word of God as his protector. The Word of God warns against impending danger, danger obviously being sin. Now, I, I read about the metal man, right? There's a, there, there are three towers overlooking Tremor Bay in Ireland. And uh, it's, it's where the Atlantic waves really dash against the rocks. So it's, it's pretty volatile. Well, the towers were built in 1823. Um, on the middle tower stands what is called the metal man. Well, the metal man, the story behind it is um, there was a British frigate that went down, killed 360 people um, as, it, as it sunk, and the, uh, the insurance company decided to not have that happen again, so they commissioned and funded the building of the metal man. And so the metal man is uh, obviously made of metal, and he's painted to look like a sailor. And he stands over the bay, pointing out the rocks, the dangerous rocks. And as I saw that, I thought, man, how fitting, right? How fitting that the Word of God stands out. And it is the metal man. It is pointing out the rocks that are in our paths to, to take us out of the will of God, to destroy us, to bring us into the clutch of sin. The Word of God is, in a sense, that metal man that's watching over us. The Word of God stands out. In Psalm 119, 9 through 11, the psalmist sees it standing out as a thing that protects him from sin. Uh, in verse 9, he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your Word. With all my heart, I have sought you do not let me wander from your commandments. With all my heart, I have sought you. So how is he doing that? 
Is he looking physically for the Lord out there? Um, Is he constantly in prayer? How is he seeking the Lord with all his heart? Well, he's in the word of God because that's where you find the Lord and that's where you learn of the Lord. And so he says, do not let me wander from your commandments, your word. I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Treasured in my heart, meaning he's tucked it away. He's been in it enough so that the word of God is a part of him and it keeps him from sinning. I often say that the mind of a believer ought to be like a concordance. As life's issues are hitting us, our minds should constantly be flashing to the Word of God. And of course, it's only going to do that if the Word of God has already been hidden in the heart. It's already been, been saturating the soul so that it's, it's just a common thing to think that way. And this is what the psalmist is saying. He's made that deposit, and that deposit keeps him um, from sinning. I would like to think that to do that, obviously, he's reading it, much reading. He's studying it, much studying, and he's memorizing it. He's putting it to memory. I'm often reminded when I think about just, just saying the word, right? You memorize it and you just say it. The Lord Jesus, you guys know the story. He's tempted by Satan. And he didn't take the time to find his Bible, right? The word of God, and of course, we're talking about the Lord, but the word of God, he's, he just states it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Get thee behind me. It's just for us, an example of how we ought to be. In Ephesians, it talks about the uh, putting on the full armor of God. And finally, it says about the sword of the Spirit. It says, take up, which is the only offensive weapon, right? Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And what's interesting is, word is typically logos, but there the word is rhema. And rhema speaks of utterance. It speaks of uh, speech, if you will. It's not the word of God on the pages of a book. It's the word of God in a person's heart, and he's able to utter it. That is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, Rama. Joshua really reflects this. When the Lord God essentially put Moses to death because of Moses' sin, He commissioned Joshua to take the people into the promised land. And he calls Joshua to himself. And in verse 8 of Joshua uh, chapter 1, he says this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, then you will make your way successful. When John was discipling me, this is one of those memory verses he gave me. Of course, I memorized it in the NIV, but it's an important verse to me. It's an important verse because it really gives you um, the, the mindset of the Lord when it comes to the Word of God and preparing someone for ministry. You wouldn't want the, the elders of Genesis Church You wouldn't want Patrick and I or anyone who's preaching to stand in front of you not having been saturated with the Word of God. 
You wouldn't want that. What good would it be to you, right? And so Joshua, for him to lead the people and represent God, the Lord says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you might be able to do all that is written. Then you will be prosperous. Then you will be successful. Meditating on the word of God so that he might be able to lead the people. The Lord impressed upon the Israelites the importance of his word and Deuteronomy where he tells them, I'm giving you these commands. And they were not written down at the time. So the Jewish has the, the, uh, the Mishnah. The Mishnah is like an oral rendition of the word of God passed down um, throughout the centuries within the Jewish community. But the Lord started that in Deuteronomy chapter six where he tells them what to do with the word. He says, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Now here's how you get it on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall take, I'm sorry, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of the house and on your gates. Man, there is no doubt, but that the Lord is saying, consume the word. Have it everywhere. The Jews even took it literally, and they actually had stuff on the forehead, on the arms, but the Lord essentially is saying the word of God ought to be such an important part of your life that, that you're teaching it constantly to your kids. Listen, school principle. One of the things that, that hurts to see, or maybe it concerns the most, is Christian kids who don't have the word of God and are being brought up and secular education without the word of God. How are they going to have God's perspective if that is the case? And listen, I'm not knocking public school, right? I've been in public school now for, I think, 18 years. I'm not knocking public school. What I am knocking is where we're not doing necessarily like the Lord taught the Israelites. Your responsibility is to make sure that your kids know the word of God. I mean, every now and then I would have a student when I taught who would bring a Bible to class. That was always delightful. See a kid bringing a Bible to class and when he read silently, he read his Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. But the point is this, we can't relinquish our responsibility to ensure that our families are being taught consistently the word of God. We can't relinquish that responsibility. Now, according to, to uh, Psalm 119, the, the word is hidden in the heart, and the benefit is so that I might not sin against you. So the word protects him in that way, not letting him uh, sin. But back to, to uh, Psalm 19, it says that there is a great reward at the end of the verse. There is a great reward for seeing the word of God that way. And of course, I can go on and on talking about the bountiful rewards that you get from the Word of God. This morning in Sunday school, we were talking about how, as believers, sometimes 
we don't understand, appreciate, tap into the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. And we're not talking about concrete riches, right? I talked about how some of those are great. Like if you're married, you have a wonderful wife. That's a blessing from the Lord. If you have a wonderful husband, blessing from the Lord. Wonderful kids, blessings from the Lord. But even more than that, those intangibles, the things that make us who we are, the things that bring peace, the things that bring contentment, all of those things that are for us, the riches of the Lord Jesus are ours, and we should be the best people on earth. We should be the people with the least worry on earth, right, because of what the Lord provides, the riches that comes from the Lord himself. And of course, much of that, all of that is tapped through the Word of God. If all I had to look forward to after being saved was going to heaven, and that's it, this would be a miserable life. If the Word of God, if God, if Jesus is not sufficient, right, to protect me, to take care of me in this life, then what good is salvation right now? But salvation is wonderful right now. There are tons of rewards that come, and that's a sermon in itself that comes with our salvation. Now, the word, he says, is his purifier. In verses 12 and 13, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. It's our purifier. He says that who can discern his error? That's why the word of God, right, must be a part of our souls because who can discern his errors? And the errors are talking about wanderings. Anything that takes us away from the will of God, these wanderings, those are errors. Who can discern them? Nobody can apart from the word of God. Paul says, I would not have known coveting if the, if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet, right? Who can discern his faults? So you can see, apart from the word of God, we might be uh, practicing sin unknowingly, or knowingly and being powerless to do anything about it apart from uh, the word of God. The psalmist shows the purification of his errors, the use of the word, through the use of the word equip, acquit his plea for the word of God to, to clear him, to clear him of any guilt, to purify, to cleanse him, to clear him of any guilt. Like I said, we can be living in sin, we can be practicing sin, and not really know what's happening apart from the Word of God. That's why the, the Bible says, you know, if your brother sins, go to him. You bring the Word of God so that you might steer him straight. But there is an example I want to show you all, and the example comes from David. Since David is um, the author of this psalm, he's a fitting example. And the example I'm going to give you is not that David didn't know he sinned, the example is he sinned, and, and perhaps he didn't know how to, how to uh, deliver himself from the clutches of sin because 
he suffered under the judgment of God for at least nine months after his sin. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And uh, I want to just talk a little bit about what took place here and how all was revealed to David through Nathan. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There are two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great had great flocks of herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. So it's a ewe lamb that's loved. It's a part of the family. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Now, this is David, and you guys know the sin. We'll look at it in a second. But this is David not even realizing that he is this man. You know, it's incredible how often that happens. Where I was talking, I'll get back just a second. A story came to mind. I was talking to a lady about... um, President Trump. Now, listen, you all. I'm the last person you want to talk to about uh, politics, right? Last person. Because I respect whoever's president. That's what the Lord tells me to do. But anyway, she's talking about him, and she's uh, just, just really beating the guy down, right? And she's professed Christian. So we're talking along, and then I showed her Romans chapter 13, where the Bible talks about honoring Um, the king, right? Uh, No authority is given except what's been given by God. God is the one who sets authorities in place. So she read all of that, and she went right back to talking about Trump. So then, here's what I said to her, and this will get you every time. I looked at her, and I said, listen, do you think that you are a worse sinner than Donald Trump? What do you think her answer was? Huh? She, she laughed it off. But it got the point across, right? There are times when it's incredible how blind we are to who we are. Incredible. And we look out at those things that people do and we fail to realize that, that they're in us as well. And it's not that you're condoning them at all, because we're not condoning. It's just recognizing our place, recognizing that we're not unique in and of ourselves. We're only unique by the grace of God, and that's it. So to finish the story, David is angry, right? And David wants restitution. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who appointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. 
I, I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if, it had, if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing an evil, doing evil in his sight, in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by the deed you have given occasion to the enemies, by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. He's given place for God to be blasphemed because of his life, because of how he lived. But the hypocrisy, as the king, he wants to, to kill this guy. The hypocrisy. What's interesting is the Lord said you will not die. So he's still a child of God. But you notice the, 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 uh, the hardship that the Lord brought on David because of his sins. Listen, that's one of the rewards, right, for being in the Word of God and having the Word of God sift us, having the Word of God cause us to work upright because then we can escape any, any discipline from the Lord that's due um, as correction due to uh, sinful habits, sinful ways. The Word of God. Nathan, it took to expose David. The Word of God through Nathan, it took to expose David to his sin, right? Now, the Word of God is an incredible thing. It does what it needs to do. As you're reading it, it'll, it you know this, it gets it done. Hebrews 4, one of my favorite passages, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged or two-edged sword, piercing as far as division of soul and spirit. So the Word of God dividing between soul and spirit, right? And if that's difficult to understand, how about joints and marrow? It judges and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him whom we have to do. You can trust that the word of God just does it. It opens you up. Nothing at all can be hidden. Now, moving back to Psalm 19, verse 12 deals with hidden faults, right? Those sins that you might not be aware of. But then 13 deals with presumptuous sins. 
Now, this is interesting to look at sin this way. Presumptuous, the word zade, it comes from, uh, well, it can be defined as being arrogant, being self-sustaining, being very prideful. So he's talking about these presumptuous sins that come from a life of pride. One commentator writes, you know, Candace said, Dad, why don't you tell us who the commentators are? And I told her, I don't do that because we all have favorites, right? And then we all have those ones we don't like. And so I don't want to say someone that you might not like because then it takes your focus off of what they said. So I just prefer to say what they say and, uh, and let you try and figure out who said it. The prevailing thought is that pride and the reference is particularly to sins which proceed from self-confidence, from reliance on one's own strength. The word does not mean open sins or flagrant sins so much as those which spring from self-reliance or pride. The prayer is substantially that he might have a proper distrust distrust of himself and might not be left by an improper reliance on his own power to the commission of sins. Presumptuous sins. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. So his appeal then is he doesn't want to trust himself. He doesn't want sin coming out of his arrogance to to control him. Let them not rule over me. I'm reminded of Romans, right, where it says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. The psalmist, David, says, I don't want this thing ruling over me. What's interesting now about David is he is now a mature David. He's not the immature David who killed Uriah. He's not the immature David who, while he was fleeing from Saul, just didn't have the level of trust in God that he ought to have. This is a very mature David. And as a mature David, he's not trusting in himself. Isn't it ironic how as you grow as a Christian, you learn to trust yourself less and less. And you also learn um, that you're capable of anything apart from the restraint of God. And so you're always mindful of that, and you're always watching yourself, and you're always fleeing from what can uh, eventually entangle you, right? So David, now mature Christian, he doesn't want to be enslaved. And, and any of us who's ever had uh, maybe a, a, a season of sinning, we know what that feels like. We know how enslaving that is. We know how all-consuming that is. David, he wants to avoid that. He does not want that to happen. Once foolish, once immature, even a murderer, an adulteress, and now we get Psalm 19 from a mature David. Paul says that we are never to trust in the flesh in any regard. In Philippians, he talks about himself not trusting in the flesh, but he says, we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he can then be blameless and be acquitted from great transgressions. 
And blameless doesn't mean he's sin-free, but blameless does mean that they're, they're not these hidden sins that's consuming him, and there's not the overt sins that come from being arrogant. There's not that being a part of his life. He's kept back from those kinds of, of presumptuous sins. You know, one of the penalties of habitual sins is guilt. And you can't take guilt away from people when they need to be guilty, when they need to feel guilty. Unfortunately, there are times when, you know, we sin and we act like a world, uh, take the same kind of uh, resolution that the world takes in terms of seeing someone and having them talk to you about your sin. Well, the world does that, and that's what the world has. But we have the Lord, and we are to talk to him. And you are to feel guilty. There's, if, if you're sinning, and I'm sinning, and we're not feeling guilty, there's something wrong, right? You'd have to check my salvation if I'm sinning and there's no guilt involved. But guilt is a good thing. Guilt is to the conscience as pain is to the flesh. It tells you something is wrong. Right? And so, th- to clear the conscience, we want to make sure that the Word of God is always checking us, is always conditioning us as it did with uh, David. And the final plea of the psalmist is in verse 14 let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And many times, especially we who are preachers, we say that. A lot of times, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. Well, David is saying that in all sincerity because of what he's already said. He's already talked about the word of God and what it means to him, right? He's, always, he's already come to appreciate the place that the word of God should have in his heart. He has a passion for the word of God. He sees the word of God as his protector, He sees the word of God as his purifier. And with all that in mind, that's how the words of your mouth and the meditation of your heart can be acceptable. Otherwise, they are not necessarily acceptable. If you are as David and the word is flowing through you, you're consumed by the word, then the meditation of your heart will be accepted because it'll be in the the area or It'll be conditioned, if you will, by the word of God. And the words that you say will be in keeping with the truth of the word of God. Then you can say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb, that's the great desire. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. The protector, the word of God warns. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me, acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. That's the purifier. That's how David sees the word of God. And that's how, if we are to say this psalm, 
and say it in truth, that's how we are to see the word of God as well. Remember last week how I talked about being sincere as we sing songs. If the songs don't really reflect where we are, then we shouldn't sing them. And so it is with this psalm. If it's not reflecting, then this, and of course, you know, this was pinned to music, so it was indeed a hymn, a song. If it doesn't reflect where the heart is, it's okay not saying it. But then praying and asking the Lord to bring us to a place where we can say that, we can say that sincerely, we can say it in, in truth. As I stated last week, there is a serious danger of the word of God being silenced in the church. Now, obviously, it's silenced in the world, and that's okay. That's way okay, because they don't have what we have. When the Lord saves them, then they have what we have, and they enter the church. But it's a sad thing what's happening. You hardly ever hear sin. You hardly ever hear sin being dealt with the right way. We, we, we've gotten to a place where the Lord has saved us, yes, but it takes something else to get us to that place of maturity. We can't think that way. It has to be the Word of God. If you see Roosevelt sinning, don't pat Roosevelt on the back and try to soothe me. Just tell me, Roosevelt, just like Nathan and David, Roosevelt, this is what you're doing, man. You're a child of God. You can't do that. Now, if I continue to do that, you've done your part. That's what the Lord says. And you can rest assured. You can rest assured that the Lord will take care of it. The Lord loved David. The Lord said of David, he's a man after my own heart. And I don't know that he said that about anybody else. But look at what David went through. David was often depressed. David had serious family issues. David, as we stated, committed murder. David was a sad man by the world's account. But David found joy and peace and contentment in the word of God in spite of all that even in spite of the judgment of God on his very life. So what I want us to do, last week I wanted us to really appreciate the word and how the Lord exalts it above everything. And this week I want us not only to appreciate that, but to apply it. And to apply it means we're going to get to a place where we're constantly growing in our desire of the Word of God. And personally, I'm not there yet. I'm putting this together and I'm thinking, man, you got to do more. I want to desire the Word of God. I want it to be my sustenance in total. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.